Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, Proceedings Editor-in-Chief Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hey, Ward. So we got some word today. We tend to uh, kind of put out current events as the first thing in, in the show, and we don't want to be too myopic and just talk about uh, Naval Academy stuff, but this could be an analog for how the world is dealing with the return to fall semester, et cetera. So we've mentioned previously that Plebe Summer is going to start on June 25th. Well, it turns out that it's not going to start on June 25th. It's now been slid a week. But beyond that, like they did with Commissioning Week, they've divided the class up into four different sessions of arrival. So it's going to kind of be staggered from late June through July 2nd. Everybody's going to show up, go immediately into isolation, as we've described it before, and then come out of that and do a four or five week process into reform when the brigade gets back. But we're unsure what form reform is going to take as we sit here and, and talk. I will note some interesting stuff that's happening at other undergraduate institutions like Notre Dame. Bill, I don't know if you saw what Notre Dame's going to do. They're going to show up early and press through through midterms until Thanksgiving and then take a break and not come back until the normal recommence of second semester. So there's no mid-semester break. They're not going home and coming back for finals around holiday season um, or around Thanksgiving. So that's an interesting, and I guess that minimizes the entropy between coming and going sort of thing. So we'll, sure. it'll, it'll be interesting to see if, life. yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see if, if that's, uh, if that's the model that other schools uh, pick up on. As we know, the California state schools, so Cal State and some other ones have, have already made the call that it's going to be distance learning for first semester. I'm not sure what effect that has on their sports teams, et cetera, and the associated revenue, but everybody's in uncharted waters here. The OPSO at the Naval Academy put an asterisk on the information to me to say, not quite we're making this up as we go along, but this plan is evolving. And and so even as we put this word out for interested parties like parents and incoming plebes and those who would be sponsors in the greater Annapolis area, we do that with the caveat that this situation is a moving target. But again, this is uh, interesting how we're trying to make do. There's a demand signal at the end of this, just like with commissioning. There's folks that have to go to flight school, have to go to the basic school, have to go to SWAS and nuke power program, et cetera. The fleet needs people. That doesn't stop. So accession sources like Recruit Command and the Naval Academy have to keep going too. So again, we'll report what we know as we know it. The only thing constant at this moment is the change that we're seeing. As I mentioned to you the other day, I was talking to one of my Naval Academy classmates who has a son who's a plebe now, so class of 2023, just finishing his first year. And he's at home down in Florida waiting to come back to the Naval Academy for summer training. He had heard that the first two blocks of summer training had been canceled already and that they were hiring contractors at the Naval Academy to essentially go into everybody's rooms and box up all their belongings and then put them in storage. So this is uh, you know, definitely dealing with the fallout of COVID uh, on, on military accession sources. is uh, It's an interesting thing to watch, and it's definitely changing, if not hourly, definitely uh, you know, on a daily basis. Yeah, so I, I don't know the impact. I don't know for a fact that the second block has been canceled. Again, as we've said on the show, our summer internship program was canceled 
because the first block was canceled and our summer internship is elective training, not mandatory training. So we took the hit. We took one for the team over the course of our summer internship program. That remains unchanged. So I don't know what the status of second block is. It wouldn't surprise me if it went away. Um, but I think what we're seeing with respect to the timing of those things, including the uh, sort of scrubbing down of Bancroft Hall, is we got the firsties out of there, right? The new newly commissioned ensigns and second lieutenants. Next is the upper class clean out their rooms and go on whatever form of summer training. Maybe they go home. I, I don't know. And then the third phase is the plebe start plebe summer, which begins with, as we've said, two weeks of isolation. And somewhere in between the first and the second part is the sanitation or the cleansing of Bancroft Hall, which, as you said, Bill, it's done by a contractor. And so you can just imagine, I mean, I forget the stats that were in our reef points, 4.3 acres and however many miles of corridors and right. It's the biggest dormitory in the world, I believe. Um, so you can imagine doing a, toothbrush scrub of that facility is going to take some time. The other part of it is uh, when they get the midshipmen out to their ships for their summer cruises, right? So that's going to be an interesting challenge as well. We published a piece by one of the Rota-based uh, destroyer CEOs or had, had just left command of a destroyer, uh, Commander David Coles, and he was talking about what those ships in Rota have done to remain COVID-free and they've been essentially doing sort of a fast cruise where they get everybody on board. They lock down the crew. They go in and out of for local operations, but they don't let anybody on or off the ship during those two weeks until they're all clear. And then they go out, you know, to the East Med or they go up to the Black Sea or some of those ships went up to the Barents uh, recently for an exercise, uh, you know, way up in the north. So, uh, it, it, you know, having midshipmen come from all over the country to join a ship as it's getting ready to go on a, a you know, a underway period, that's going to throw some uh, other variables into the equation, right, of trying to keep the potential for uh, COVID spread off of ships. Yeah, you you can't do it, right? I mean, you got to do 14 days of isolation in some way. I don't know if they'll have a holding facility. And then once they do those 14 days, they can go direct to the brow. I don't know how that works, right? So this, yeah. these are the things yeah. we're figuring out. Not Lots to figure out. A lot Certainly. to figure out. All right. Well, let's get to our guests. Joining us this week are the part of the team that created the new graphic novel from Dead Reckoning, The String Bags. The writer is a guy who's been on the show before, our good friend Garth Ennis. Garth has been writing comics since 1989. His credits include Preacher, The Boys, which are both uh, were turned into TV shows. Hitman, successful runs on The Punisher and Fury for Marvel. He was on the show last year for, it's actually a reprint that we did of one of his works called Night Witches. Uh, we talked to him shortly after he did a uh, line went for miles out the uh, out the door. I was blown away by the, the fans that joined us at uh, Third Eye Comics here in Annapolis to meet Garth. He is totally a rock star. That doesn't overstate it. Um, so we're happy to have Garth back on the show. Hello, Garth. Hey, how's it going? It's going great. And also joining us is uh, the artist for String Bags, PJ Holden. PJ is joining us from Belfast. Uh, he's known for his work for 2000 AD on Judge Dredd. He's drawn for Rogue Trooper, Robocop, Terminator, James Bond, World of Tanks and Battlefields. Um, he's the co-creator of the Department of Monsterology and Number Cruncher. Hello, PJ. Welcome from Hello. Belfast. And I, we just we just have to note that PJ has a very cool mic 
um, that, that, that we're really blown away by. We got to get that rig. It's super good. And that's why you sound so good coming to us. What so, I lack in rock starness, I make up for in microphone. Oh, but now that you're uh, on, now that you're on the proceedings podcast, you are a rock star. It's like when the oh, Beatles, okay. the Beatles on Ed Sullivan, that's all it takes. right? It, you're, you're huge. You're going to need an agent. It's gigantic. Um, so, you know, that's just what we do. You know, it's just a thing. So let's talk about first the process of just in, in general, uh, let's use the verb assembling a graphic novel. So Garth, let me, let me start with you. What leads, uh, is it the writing? Is it the artwork? Um, and, and in this case, how did you come into this particular property? For me, I suppose it actually goes back to the, the comics of, of my childhood. Um, the comics I read as a kid, a good deal of them being war comics. That's where I first ran across the um, the fairy swordfish, its crews, um, operations like the, the attack on Toronto, the attack on the Bismarck, the Channel Dash. It was one of a number of stories I've always wanted to tell. Um, and when Dead Reckoning uh, asked me for an original graphic novel, it just happened to be the one that was most ready to go. Um, as for the actual mechanics of it, um, it generally begins with the writer. It begins with a script which looks not unlike a script for um, a movie or a TV show. The difference is that it's generally broken down by panels. So, for instance... Um, a typical panel description might read long shot night above the clouds, nine biplanes too far away to identify are making their way above the cloud base in four uh, v, v formations of three. Um, you would then say caption and the caption would be whatever, uh, whatever line or whatever dialogue was supposed to go in that scene. Um, you then carry on, right through the book the artist takes that and it's the description that he works from that tells him what to draw essentially and you just repeat until finished pj so how it's as easy that, as that is, yeah <laughs> well, so, 174 pages or something yeah so pj you get a, a 174 pages from garth and what yeah well yeah i was a broken man by the end of it um <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it, i mean the thing is when, Gar, when garth writes garth's scripts are um, very succinct. I, I've I've done a lot of uh, a lot of pages by a lot of different writers, and Garth's are one of those things where pretty much everything you need is on there, but there's nothing extraneous. There's no extras, you know. So you will find it'll say about the planes, but then you're kind of left with a research question. You're left with, well, what do these planes look like? And so, the, so there's a kind of the mechanics of what do these things physically look like? And then I have to, I mean, Garth knows this stuff a lot better than I do, but I end up having to go off and do a bucket load of research before I can even put pen to paper. Um, and then once you've done that, once you, you've got some sense of what the vehicles look like, and that actually can take a lot longer than, that can take you over 30 or 40 pages before you can really get a handle on some of these things. Um, but even then, once you've done that, then you're kind of, it's almost like a logic puzzle. He's written a very specific description. So you've got to deliver that, but you're also trying to deliver the emotion of the story and you're trying to figure out, well, how do these panels connect to each other in a way that, that um, elicits that kind of emotional content that Garth is going for or that any writer's going for. And so it's, it's, um, I mean, it's a puzzle in a way. I always think of it as, as kind of fixing, you know, doing a puzzle and just kind of assembling all the bits together and, and, and kind of putting that together and making it right, you know? 
But the research is always a killer. Two other names on the credits, colored by Kelly Fitzpatrick, lettered by Rob Steen. So, PJ, you get the script, you draw, I guess, just sketches, right? Or just pen pen and ink. You And, 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 and do you just draw the balloons and then well, Rob no, fills them in? Or how so does that Garth go? Garth will write a script, which uh, I, I don't know. How long did it take you to write that book, Garth? Um, I'll t- generally write about 20, 30 pages a week. Right. Um, and I tend to, as I go further through the story, I'll, I'll speed up. Mm. Um, so with, with the string bags all told, gosh, you're probably looking at six weeks work, something yeah. like Yeah. Once I get the script, it's about a year. <laughs> so that's a, it's a long time. It's a year, because, purely because even if you're, you know, and I'm a fairly reasonably speedy artist, I think, um, you can you can do a page a day. You know, a page a day is a good rate to hit. That's uh, And even that can be, that's quite fast, you know, for, for a lot of artists. So a page a day, 176 pages, you know, you're kind of between things that you're redrawn and kind of doing the research for, it's about a year, a little over a year. Uh, and that at that point, sort of midway point of that, or two thirds of the way through, you start looking at coloring and lettering and, you know, how that's going to be done. Because there's no point in giving a colorist one page at a time over a year. You want to give them 30 or 40 or 50 pages so they can do it in one chunk. And it does help to have a chunk of this stuff together. And it sort of helps as well, I think. Um, when we were doing it, what I would do is I would do 20 pages a month, roughly, uh, and I would do layout, little thumbnail drawings of, of the page. So I kind of read the script, figure out what needs to be done on the page and kind of draw little thumbnails, send that to Garth and Gary for approval. When, once they were OK, I would then start penciling those, send those over for approval, make sure we were getting everything right and then ink those and then kind of change bits and pieces as per script. That bit's not quite right in this. But, you know, there's always there's always things that I'm kind of, you know, every artist will get slightly you'll misinterpret something or in the in the because i mean essentially what i'm doing is i'm retelling garth's story garth's tell told me the story and now i'm telling you the story and i've got to make sure that i you know in that kind of um it it, it i've got to make sure it doesn't work like google translate you know i've got to make sure it comes through in a, in a in a way that adds to it rather than subtracts to it and to make sure that you're understand not just understanding the story but also getting more from it you know that's the thing when comics really work well you get much more from that you get much you know more than even reading a book or you know it's i think one of the advantages of comics over over a book says you can look at it straight away you can see exactly the emotional responses just glancing at a page of artwork and that kind of it cuts right into your brain you know so um i will try and do Kind of, I'll do big chunks of scenes. I'll do about twenty pages, and then I think when by the time Kelly came on board to color it, I think we'd about a hundred pages done for her to start coloring into, and then I was kind of doing the rest of it while she was coloring that. I think Rob then came in pretty much when it's all inked because he can then just go in and start lettering over that, and that's when that's when you see the alchemy. That's when you see it's really worked when the lettering starts going on there, and you can actually read the thing as a story, you know. Um, although I did used to when I was when I first kind of breaking into comics, I would take some comic work that I was trying to do and I would show it to my wife, who's not a comic reader at all, and say, can you understand what's going on in this page? Can you, you know, if you look at this, would you tell me the story that you see on that page? And if she could tell me it, I would know that I've done a decent job. If she would no clue, this is without dialogue, if she would no clue and I needed to kind of prompt her with dialogue, I knew I was in trouble. I knew, you know, you'd know that you were sort of on the wrong track. So I kind of pride myself. I think my storytelling is pretty solid, pretty good. And 
can be read easily. So it's it's um, that's what I like to do is tell good stories. Well, the images and the colors in the images are so dramatic and so you know stark in some cases. And uh, this is World War Two story, the fairy swordfish, which was the, the Royal Air Forces or the Royal Navy's air arm, um, torpedo bomber, right, which was, it looks like something from World War One. So Garth, give us a little bit on the on the background of this particular aircraft and why was the uh, the Royal Navy using something that looked like it was uh, out of World War One at the start of World War Two? Yeah, even when the swordfish was introduced in the mid to late 30s, it was already sliding slowly out of date. Pretty soon, uh, the U.S. Navy would have modern uh, torpedo bomber aircraft. Um, when the war began, the Germans and Italians might not have had um, made-for-purpose aircraft like that, but they certainly adapted what they had. They adapted modern aircraft, like the Hankel and the Savoia Marchetti, which were able to do the job very capably. The British have the swordfish. There's been a kind of a battle for control of naval aircraft um, between the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy on and off really ever since the end of the First World War. There were two air services then, uh, the Royal Naval Air Service and the Royal Flying Corps. They merged to become the Royal Air Force. But there was always this question of exactly who controls aircraft aboard ship. Um, So that combined with the general reluctance of British governments in the the interwar years to spend money on any of their services mean that the British end up going to war with what they've got rather than what they need. Um, No one knows at this point exactly how capable the swordfish is. Everyone takes one look at it and makes the judgment most people do. This is a leftover from an earlier war. Um, Its crews have yet to get down to work. But when they when they set when they actually go to war, yes, it's very much an unproven concept and one that a lot of people have very little confidence in. Except it should be said, the crews. Describe for our listeners what the fairy swordfish looks like. It's a biplane. Um, it's quite a big, ungainly looking one. Uh, single engine. It has a crew of three generally. Uh, pilot at the front, immediately behind him in the open cockpit. Uh, there's no canopy, is the observer, and behind him, facing backwards with the single Lewis gun, uh, is the uh, the gunner. The thing also has a forward-firing machine gun, a single forward-firing machine gun. It has no intercom system beyond voice pipes in the cockpit, uh, so the crew have to scream to be heard by one another. When the war begins, it's essentially a torpedo bomber. It's going to carry a, uh, a torpedo, much like the sort of thing that a, a submarine would launch, uh, slung under its fuselage, uh, which it will launch into the water against enemy shipping. It can also carry bombs and flares. As the war goes on, it will carry rockets. It really doesn't look like it's going to have much chance of survival. And yet, as we see in our story, it took part very successfully in some of the most famous naval engagements of all time with telling effect. Yeah, in fact, Garth, some of, some of the liabilities become its survival mechanisms like speed and the ability to fly at very low altitude below radar coverage. Yes, I think, I think much of this is discovered by accident. The, the aircraft proves too slow for modern fire prediction. So the gunners on the, uh, the German battleship Bismarck, for instance, 
their flak positions are essentially set up so that enemy aircraft will fly into their into their into the fire of their guns. The swordfish is too slow and it completely completely throws off the predictions to the point that in fact uh, many of the aircraft attacking the Bismarck were were very badly shot up, but nearly all got back to their aircraft carrier. Uh, in the Channel Dash, uh, when the German Focke-Wulf and Messerschmitt fighters attacked the Swordfish, it's very difficult for a, a fighter doing almost 400 knots to slow down enough to get its sights on an aircraft that can barely do 100. Of course, the Germans figure out what to do about that, but not straight away. And then the aircraft's there's a simple question of the aircraft's structure. It's a tough old thing. Uh, it's very simple. And it turns out later in the war that when more modern aircraft are kept below decks in uh, extreme Pacific and Atlantic conditions, the swordfish can still be brought up on deck and launched. So there is a lot to be said for this apparent obsolete museum piece and, and its capabilities, its surprising capabilities. Garth, how did you come upon this story? How did you get interested in the, the fairy swordfish um, well, it's the same way I it's the same way I got interested in military history generally. It was reading war comics as a kid, leading me to an interest in military history, and then full circle back to doing my own war comics much later. The, the British war comics I read, um, many of them were what we call the picture libraries. These are little A5 size black and white uh, titles with uh, they're called things like War Picture Library, Air Ace Picture Library. And a couple of there's another series called Commando, and these uh, these featured a couple of these I remember reading as a kid featured um, stories uh, about the swordfish. One had a quite detailed uh, account of the um, the swordfish's actions in the Mediterranean, culminating in the Toronto raid. And I think that's where that's what put the hook in me. That's where the thing got a lock in my imagination. And as I said earlier. It was it was there on the list, and it was the one that was ready to go when when Dead Reckoning came calling. Yeah, I, I want to say the Commando is still in print because like Garth and I are similar age, but well, almost identical age actually, mm. and grew up in around the same area. But those war comics that we were reading at that stage, some of them were written and drawn by veterans. You know, a lot of them were actually you know people had seen action in the war, so these were not just other war comics. You know, they they were some of these things had come out of truth and, and true lived experiences and so on. I mean, mm. obviously all pared down for kids to read, but you know, not all of them were that, that pared down for kids to read. Um, so the, I mean, I always find that interesting is, is that when uh, we were growing up, the books that we would have picked up and read, uh, I know, for example, uh, Ron Smith uh, was uh, an artist for 2000 AD, at the, at, and, but also a former Spitfire pilot. And so to know that those guys had actually gone through this stuff and had then become illustrators and, and writers and stuff, it's always very interesting to me. But I mean, and, and the generation that are coming up now, of course, there are people who've, who were the same age when Star Wars came out. So it's it's that kind of weird sort of discrepancy in time that, you know, so, but I mean, they, they were, war comics are great when I was a kid, you know, they, they were everything you wanted them to be. And of course, I'm sure Garth, like I saw soldiers walking around the streets of Belfast as well, which just piqued my interest even more in war comics stuff. That, that, that was uh, an interesting point. There is something peculiar about comic distribution in Northern Ireland at the time, certainly where I grew up. It was very rare that you saw American superheroes mm. or their British reprints. I, I think uh, there's a, there's another guy I've worked with called John McRae who, who grew up in Belfast. He, I think, did have access to superhero comics. I didn't. I saw them very rarely. 
the bulk of my reading was, in fact, the war comics that we're talking about uh, and others like them. Um, were it not for that particular quirk of distribution, I might have the same background in comics as anybody else, just just superheroes. What were the political implications of American comics, Garth? What uh, during the Troubles? What was what what was the element there that was problematic? Um, I don't think it was. Um, I don't think it was. Uh, it was anything specific to those comics. It was just that distribution was a little quirky in Northern Ireland at the time. Um, possibly because of the political situation, possibly it was more the further you went from the center of things, which was Belfast, um, the harder it it got to get the particular titles into local stores. Um, It just meant that when I saw them, it was few and far between, and I never had a chance to develop an interest in them. Um, The same actually goes for their British reprints. There there were British titles that reprinted American comics in a British format, and I never really saw those either. When I eventually did see them, they were a bit of a surprise to me. I I didn't get a chance to to read American comics properly until I was well into my teens when people started to import them. I would say as well, I mean, this was before comic shops. There were no comic shops, so distribution, right. distribution was all through newsagents. So it was kind of local newsagents you'd find things. And the newsagents tended to favor, um, uh, there were two main publishers, IPC, uh, which uh, who became Fleetway, I think, uh, or is the other way around, and uh, DC Thompson. And they tended to do sort of British comics that would be anthology titles, frequently war stories. So the, the two big war stories of my childhood uh, were Battle and Warlord. Um, but they'd also, these two um, publishers would basically create new titles to fill up shelf space. So you couldn't, you know, as a news agent, you couldn't put anything else in. And the stories I always was always told was that American comics came over as ballast. But I don't know how old that story is. I don't know if that's a story from, you know, the 50s and six, you know, 60s, but never happened in the 80s. But certainly, it may, you know, I think the only time I really I stumbled across a bunch of American comics, superhero stuff, I, mean, I was maybe 12 and I found a stash in a bin that was like, I, I don't know, it was like a treasure trove of stuff. But that was the only time I find any quantity of them ever. Yeah, I wanted to point out for our listeners that uh, a couple of things. One is that uh, if they're if they want to see an excerpt of this book, uh, it's available on our website and also in the June issue of Naval History Magazine. And so we'll post this on our front page of our web website. So we we published about the the first chapter of String Bags in the June issue of Naval History Magazine. For the last couple of years, we've been publishing a series uh, called Acts of Valor, which is graphic novel content uh, that are stories about uh, Medal of Honor recipients in the U.S. military. Well, Many I, of those I'm stories. doing one of those. I've just done really? one of those. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. which, which is the one you're doing? Uh, is it Henry Johnston? Henry Johnston, okay. the uh, right. black recipient of the Medal of Honor. Yes. It's a short eight-page thing, but I've, I've just sort of finished one of those. Terrific. Yes, for the uh, the acts of valor, we we started putting in uh, Naval History Magazine. I think about two years, maybe three years ago, it was the first ones, and they'll those will be compiled into a book that Dead Reckoning will put mm-hmm. out. The Naval Institute Press uh, will put out probably in a year or two when we get enough of them to compile into a full 150 page or so book. Uh, but we we published uh, the the first chapter of String Bags in the June issue of the magazine. It's been interesting to see. The feedback from our readers already. So we've had a number of people come in to say how much they love it. And then we all we, we have some naval history readers who are a little bit 
um, disconcerted to see graphic novel content in a naval history <laughs> magazine. And they say, why do you publish this comic book stuff? Right. And it's it's always interesting to see the you know, people have different views, different different things for different people, different readers like uh, different, uh, you know, to take in information in different ways. Mm. Uh, I was at a, uh, a briefing about two years ago. Uh, at an organization called the Center for Naval Analysis, which is a think tank associated with the U.S. Navy. A lot of our members are, work at that organization. I uh, happened to mention uh, the graphic novel content and, and I mentioned uh, Dead Reckoning and that the Naval Institute was starting to publish graphic novels. And uh, somebody who was a little, old, a little bit older uh, said, why would the Naval Institute do that? And before he could even get his question out, I didn't have to answer there was a, a young reader, a, a PhD, um, somebody who is a, a naval analyst, who said, "Oh, I love it, and and uh, don't think about what you miss in graphic novel format." As you were saying a minute ago, PJ, think about what's in a graphic novel that isn't in just text only, right? Yeah. The text, the texture of the colors I was mentioning, the texture of the you know the drawings, what you can tell visually, yeah. maybe you can't tell in text. So I mean, I mean it, if a picture paints a thousand words, a graphic novel's got to be worth several million. And, you know, it's 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 a I lot agree. in there. You know? and, there. And, it's, and it's about, I think, as well, it's about not just the message you can, but how you instantly can connect to you. I mean, it's some some of the elements in any a really good graphic novel, a really good book. I mean, you'll you'll turn a page and can be hit by something so unexpected and and that kind of can turn upside down the entire story. And you and that will go straight through your eyeballs and into your brain and, and no seconds flat. You know, you will get that straight away. And and it's and it connects you to a story like no other medium, I think. I mean, uh, Garth could easily you could have easily written this as a book, but I mean, would you have seen that as a book necessarily? Well, that's that's the interesting point, isn't it? I mean, there, there are a number of ways to consider a graphic novel as a means of storytelling, but it is it is exactly that. It is just one more way to tell a story. Uh, no more or less valid than a novel, uh, a film, a TV show. Um, it's just one more way to do it. We simply come out of a slightly different tradition um, comics have in this country uh, generally been seen as as a medium for children in the rest of the world, however, throughout Europe and Asia. Um, comics are much more widely accepted. That, that's a tradition I, I find more helpful. It is, as I say, simply another way to tell a story. If you look at it from that point of view, um, maybe it'll bear a little more fruit than, it, than if you immediately expect Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, that kind of thing. That having been said, you know, and I know Garth, you've you've worked as a novelist, as a screenwriter, as as a graphic novelist. Um, those skills are not necessarily transferable. You know, uh, I'm a novelist, and I've tried to write a screenplay, and I suck mm. at trying to do screenwriting. Um, mm. And and what I was fascinated by last year when you and I first met, the Night Witches is the first. Dead Reckoning product that I read cover to cover. And right. what, what, and this is kind of to your point, PJ, where the pacing and the emotion, and you know, some panels there's no talking and it's just be like shadow figures or just a state of mind. Um, that's the trick, right? Is the mm -hmm. sort of the meter of it. And it's a very specific thing. So um, let me put it to you, Garth. What do you think are the differences and how does how does being an effective graphic novelist sort of petition that sense of meter? 
there there are two areas I think, and and PJ is actually very good at at both of these. One is you want to get the reader on your side. Well, PJ's artwork, I think, his sense of character. There's something very good natured about it. So when I introduce the three swordfish crew that we follow through the story, um, Archie, Ollie, and Pops, you know who they are as soon as you look at them. You know who those three guys are. You can see that Archie, the pilot, tries too hard but is never going to be that brilliant, takes everything far too seriously. Ollie sitting behind him is the exact opposite. And Pops, a bit older, is watching these two and waiting for the other shoe to drop, really. Um, the other thing is, when, especially when you're telling a war story, is you want a certain dynamism to the action. Because a lot of, this, a lot of the story involves what we call hardware. It involves the ships. It involves the aircraft. Maybe in another story, you might have tanks. Um, PJ talked about doing his research, getting the, the details right, and that's certainly important. But you know, any halfway competent artist uh, can give you a reasonably accurate depiction of any given aircraft. It takes up on a PJ skill, I think, to make the thing come alive on the page, to give it that dynamism, so that it doesn't just sit there looking like a colored-in blueprint. The aircraft should look as if they're about to fly off the page past you. Likewise, the bullets. The ship should look as if they should simply be able to sail off the horizon at the end of the page. That's what an artist of PJ's caliber can do. That's a huge asset to someone like me. Um, interesting you talk about screenwriting. Uh, in, when you write comics, instead of actors uh, and a director who are going to take your script and bring it to life, you have an artist. That's PJ's job to be the, act, to be the cast and the director and the special effects department, although Kelly does a little of that too all rolled into one. It's a scary amount of responsibility now, I feel. No, that's huge responsibility. <laughs> wow. That's a lot of trust. So PJ, what, how do you feel about what Garth just said in terms of, you know, capturing the kinetic and the pacing and all of that? Well, how first do you of all, I'm going to say right? it's lovely of him to say all that about me and I'm going to record it and just keep it and play it back every so we often. We got it recorded right uh, here. It's part of the show. Especially when he sends me an email that says, this isn't what I wrote in the script. You could <laughs> Well, is that a process? Now that you brought it up, is there an iterative process where he gives you the script, you draw it, and he's like, whoa, tilt, no, not right. How does that yeah, go? Yeah, I mean, I, like with, with the character designs, I think what helps a lot is our backgrounds are so similar. I mean, like, I'm not quite sure how far away Garth are and I in terms of where we were born, but it's not, you know, it's a car journey away. And in terms of date of birth, it's maybe four weeks or three weeks or something. Yeah, so we're fine. almost, you know, yeah. we're almost identically aged. We live almost identically in location. We got the same comics. So, so when Garth gives gives me character design, uh, you know, character descriptions, said this is what this character looks like. Intuitively, I know how I would draw that character and what I think he's after. And I'll, I think when I first sent those characters, you, I think the email you sent was, um, yeah, this is ex this is like you picked these out of my head. This is exactly what yeah. I want them to look like. Yeah. And it was, you know, that's that's lovely. I mean, of course, you get things wrong, and sometimes that's down to you know 176 pages. You're going to get something wrong. You know, it's, it's not always going to be right. And with Garth as well, sometimes it'll be. Look, the Stuka you've done there is the Stuka Mark G, and I want the Stuka Four. And so, the Stuka Four's got some more knobbly bits on it. So you better. I'm getting all these numbers. You can see in his eyes twitching I think as that's I say. A technical term. I'd say knobbly. Knobbly bits. bits. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I'm going to use that one. So, the, so I mean, it's always Garth's very good at keeping me right in terms of vehicle stuff, and and um, because I, I mean, I like telling stories about people, so the hardware is less important to me. 
But at the same time, you know, if you want a character scared of a vehicle, you know, if a character encounters a tank for the first time and it's a and this thing's got to have this massive imposing kind of you're working with a character, but you're also working with the character of the tank and how you're going to how you're going to show that and getting it right is is important for that as well. Uh, I But uh, at the same time, I think Gordon Rennie, a friend of ours, posted about uh, Werner Herzog once said about uh, being reviewed. Somebody said, you've got this element wrong. And he says, ah, you're an accountant. Who cares about accountants? <laughs> Go you away to your other accountants and start accounting things. Well done, you've tricked the artist. <laughs> you know, so, so there's a there's a point where you go, I've got to get everything right, and then once the storytelling is done, it's kind of you can't you can't because I mean what, the difficulty as well with the research is you've got to very quickly get up to speed to being an expert on all of this stuff in no time flat. You know, I there's no you could spend two years researching all this stuff, but the reality is you've got a deadline to, to hit. And so when you do the research and you find a bit of um, a, 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 you know, I. I I keep wanting to use the word costume, but it's not. It's the the uh, clothing to wear, or the you know the 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 vest or, or something. And you go right. That's is that about the right period? That looks about right. And then as you as you go on, sometimes you'll find some of those details you've got wrong, and you've got to go back and kind of fix them. Those are little you know things that I want them to be right anyway. I would like all of this stuff to be exactly accurate, but you've got to learn to kind of meet your deadline and make sure that you're not kind of you're not sort of uh, missing the wood for the trees, really, and, and making sure if the characters are reacting in a realistic way, you know, um, I am never going to be in a, a fairy um, swordfish about to hit the Bismarck. I'm never going to be there. But I've been scared. I've been scared for my life. I know what that feels like. You know, I, I've I've held my son in his arms when he's he's low on oxygen because he had asthma when he was a baby. I've known what that feels like. And that my job is to take that feeling that I know and, and convey it to you, but from this other character's point of view, you know. To what extent do you think growing up in Northern Ireland when you guys did informs your approach to to art, right? I don't want to overplay that, but, you know, things like existential threats to your home and your safety are, are, are were part of your upbringing. It's possible. I, I should say that I, I grew up in a very quiet, uh, suburb of a very quiet town, not far from Belfast. So I was close enough to the big city to be aware of these things without actually experiencing their effects directly. Um, that said, it was impossible to grow up in Northern Ireland at that time and not be aware of a military presence, not be aware of troops on the streets, of vehicles, of checkpoints, and so on. And so, odd as it sounds, that became very normal. To the point that um, in the late 80s and early 90s, when friends of mine would come over from England, some of the, the friends I'd made in the business, uh, they were quite jarred and upset by what they saw. And it took me a while to get to get used to the idea that what was normal for me was not normal at all, not by everyday standards of uh, someone living in, a, in an average Western nation. Um, it's Right, it's impossible to get away from that. That will always have some bearing um on on what i write and and i'm sure on on pj's work as well yeah i mean i i like garth i, I think you can very much overplay the terrible tragic upbringing but really i had a quite a nice upbringing there was nothing going on around near me i there i did have um when i was about 16 or 17 someone petrol tried to petrol bomb our house and it took i think the next day i realized that i might have died and I, and i and but none of that, I mean, all these things percolate inside you and they come out. 
And it's probably my, my influences aren't so much the fact I grew up in Northern Ireland as, as it is I liked um, commando comics and battle comics and, you know, those kind of black and white British war comics. That's more of the influence. The fact that those were the ones I saw... I, I don't know. I mean, I grew up, I, I did see soldiers on the streets. I um, I, I grew up, I, I mixed parentage. My mum's a Protestant, my dad's a Catholic. So uh, we were kind of always, my, as far as I know, my dad was always trying to keep us safe by keeping us in sort of relatively safe areas. But I saw a soldier on the street. I thought it was the coolest looking thing I'd ever seen. You know, I remember watching a helicopter land and a, and a, a soldier coming out of it and him letting me look through a scope and thinking, this is amazing. <laughs> and then, of course, you'd go off and you'd find a leg of a broken chair. And, you'd, and the next minute you're a soldier fighting the Germans, you know, that's <laughs> but, but I don't I don't necessarily think any of that um any more than any, you know, it's all, it all percolates in there, I suppose, and it all comes out when you're when you're doing the work. But it's not. I don't. I don't feel like I need to dive into it to get it. I feel like it's if it's coming out at all, it's coming out as just part of the, you know, in the same way I'm right-handed. You talked about the creative process of creating a graphic novel uh, and how it iterates between the text writer and the and the artist. Uh, I, I I noticed that you've both done some work for World of Tanks. Uh, and so that's a, a very famous and successful uh, online game. And uh, the Naval Institute has now a relationship with World of Warships. I'm curious, the creative process for a graphic novel, is it much different than the creative process for doing an online game? Uh, might be I'm the wrong person to ask in that I have very limited experience of, of computer games of any kind. Uh, the last one... I played really was about 25 years ago and that was Pac-Man in a bar. <laughs> so I've provided stories in a couple of instances for uh, just story outlines um, that were then taken by other writers and turned into the, uh, by the mechanical process turned into computer games. But my own experience of them is extremely limited. So I, I, I do not know. I, I mean, I, I came into World of Tanks. Garth had done, uh, it started a World of Tanks book with Carlos Esquera, uh, um, wonderful artist, sadly passed away. Um, and he, I think Carlos had done the first two parts of World of Tanks with Garth. Yeah, that's and, right. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I think his mom, of all things, his mom wasn't well. And so he ended up having to kind of walk away from that. And Garth had asked me if I was available to do it. And I had never heard of World of Tanks. I, you know, I, I worked in IT for 20 years, but I never played video games. So I was going, World, World of what? World of what is it? Is it like Pixar? Do they have eyes? What is, what is this thing? Um, and so I kind of looked it up and then I read Garth's script. And as far as I could tell, World of Tanks said, as long as it's got tanks, whatever. <laughs> Garth, yeah, Garth that's, that's very true. It was very much a case of um, you write a, you write a story about tanks and we'll turn it into a game. If it had been the other way around, I would have been sunk. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I really have been no use for anything like that. Um, but, you know, as it turned out, it gave me a great opportunity to do a story set in the Normandy Bocage fighting. And then a year later, another one set at the Battle of Kursk, which PJ did. He, he handled all the mm. duties on that. To me, these were uh, more chapters and some great war stories that Garth was writing. The fact that they were tied to World of Tanks really meant very little in terms of, uh, well, as far as I could tell anyway, it meant very little in terms of the content beyond these had tanks in them instead of planes. You know, that's they, it, they were still great stories about people, you know, um, that were thrown into kind of extraordinary circumstances. 
PJ, for you, when you're drawing for a uh, an online game, uh, do you end up drawing a lot more sketches, uh, or is it the same amount? Is it is it similar? The, the best thing the best thing about drawing World of Tanks was I was able to email them and say, "Can you send me some 3D tanks, please?" And they sent me 3D models of tanks, and and that just those are perfect reference because I can position them on a page the way I, I mean if I if I want to do a battle, I can put sixty or seventy tanks there, and I can rotate a camera around it, um, and then I kind of trace over them, but I. I Try and add character to the things so they're not they don't look like trace drawings. I I kind of you know I'm chipping little bits away from them, adding a little bit of character to them, and giving um giving some life to the line. You don't want a dead line when you're drawing a vehicle. It's, I think that's that's one of the mistakes people people can make when they're they're heavily referencing stuff is they kind of go well I've got to get this exactly right. I've got to you know this is yeah. a tank so it's got to have straight lines and these lines I'll you get a ruler out and I'll measure you know. But the reality is these things would have been dented to you know they've dented like crazy so there isn't really a straight line on any of these things so you're kind of drawing them and adding little notches and adding a little bit of life to it and adding a little it's, bit of a curve. It's like I said earlier when when you mentioned character mm. um I said that was the difference really between a, a, a blueprint a blueprint perfect drawing and something that looks like it's alive on the page and I think each vehicle each aircraft does have its own character the swordfish has something that no other aircraft, even even of its kind, has. Uh, Ferry followed the swordfish with a thing called the albacore, which, no matter how you look at it, has none of the charisma and none of the character of the swordfish. You just couldn't somehow imagine it becoming the, the kind of historical star that the swordfish did. Um, it's just a dull-looking plane. Um, look at the spitfires you drew at the end of string bags, mm. the fuck wolves. Um, these are enormously charismatic aircraft. They're, they're just uh, canvas and steel and wood, and yet somehow they have a life, a personality all their own, then perhaps none more so than the swordfish. These are mass-produced, but not machined, not mass-machine produced. You know, there's still hands putting these things together, you know, even even at the ferocious rate of production that they were doing with all of these vehicles, they were still handcrafted in a, in a, in a way. Yes, you can see the minds behind them. You mm. can you can sort of see uh, how people would would begin with the problem. How do I launch a torpedo from an aircraft at a moving ship under fire? Um, they begin with that problem, and then the swordfish is one particular designer's answer to that one. So the graphic novel is the String Bags, the latest release from Dead Reckoning. We've been talking to the writer, Garth Innes, and the artist, P.J. Holden. Garth and P.J., thank you for coming by the Proceedings Podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been great fun. Okay, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast. We'll be back here later this week with two Proceedings authors talking about the naval aviation and weapons in review. Until then, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.